Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy? And uh, we want to read the first chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there might be one in the pew near you. If there isn't, the person who is nearest you has been praying that you would come over and read with them. All week they've been praying, fasting and praying, and so this is your opportunity. Uh, But anyway, would you please stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Obviously, the Apostle Paul is the writer, and he begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Let's begin with prayer. Father, it is always our request, our desire, our need that this time that we set aside to focus upon your word would be one in which you could speak intimately and deeply into our lives. That you would, as we read, fan the flame of faith in our own hearts that our lives might burn more brightly. We pray for your help in this. We trust you for it, Lord. And we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Paul was about my age when he wrote this final, at least what we believe to be his last letter, the last record we have of his written ministry, writing to a young protege, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, by the name of Timothy, whom he had left the church in Ephesus as its pastor and overseer. The course of Paul's life was a lot different than mine, certainly a lot different than many of ours. Because for 30 years, he had been, as he self-described it in 2 Corinthians 11, constantly on the move. He talks about often being without sleep, without food, about being cold, and about being naked. And he also had been constantly in danger. He talks about shipwrecks. In fact, three times he was shipwrecked. He talked about the dangers of bandits, about the danger of the Jews, the Gentiles, about false brothers. He said in the city, whether he was in the country, whether he was at sea, danger had become really part of his life experience. Repeatedly, he had been physically assaulted and abused. He says, I was flogged severely. The term flogging literally means you take a, it's a, cor, a, a, a handle with nine cords of leather on it, sometimes with pieces of metal or stone in them, and you simply, they would be hit on the back with them, and pieces of flesh would be torn out of your skin. In fact, he says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one. In other words, under Roman law, you could only whip a man with a lash 39 times because they were certain the 40th would kill you. So we, that's where we get our phrase, he was beaten within an inch of his life. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. These were long, hard sticks that would be bundled together and you would be hit with them much like you would be hit in the back with a baseball bat. He even says, once I was stoned. We read in Acts that he was literally left for dead, having thought that they had killed him. And if that weren't enough, he frequently talked about being in prison. We know of a few occasions of Paul being in prison, and yet he said, I was frequently put in prison. I think it's almost as if when he came into a now new town, his first stop would have been with the local bondsman because he knew that he'd have to be bailed out of jail. It just became part of the process of him being arrested every time he began to preach the gospel. And he said, finally, that I had been exposed to death again and again. Hardship, repeated over and over again, can actually become customary in our lives. And I think for Paul, hardships and sufferings were really something that he had come to accept as something that was going to happen to him wherever he went. But he tells us that it was coming because of one simple reason, and that was the fact that he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I have been appointed to be a herald to preach the gospel. And he says, I am not afraid, he said in verse 8, to testify about the gospel. He adds in verse 11, that's why I go through all of this suffering. But he also, as I said, became somewhat accustomed because he would later go on to say in the same book in chapter 3 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience persecutions, will experience sufferings. 
So that we have to understand that when we talk about somebody surrendering their life as a follower of Jesus Christ, without us intending to create a problem or a situation, it's just going to happen. Not because you've done something wrong or because you haven't learned to do the technique subtly enough yet, but the simple fact is we have an adversary, Peter said, the devil, who looks for every opportunity to hinder, to discourage, and even hopefully defeat us from being communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that this was the way it worked, but he also knew that now things were different. You see, previously, when Paul got in difficulty, he could boast, as he does in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, I have been delivered from the lion's mouth. And time and time again, that was what happened. Even when we read about him being stoned to death, by all appearances, it seems to suggest that God simply raised him from the dead. That's pretty good victory, that Paul found himself escaping situations, being delivered, being healed, surviving the worst of circumstances, and yet this time he knew it was different. There was going to be no deliverance. There was going to be no leniency coming from Rome. There was no pardon. There would be no acquittal because there was absolutely no justice involved or rule of law which is why he informs Timothy and he says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. Now, Paul shares that, I think, from a rather unique perspective because when you think about people leaving this world, we know a lot of people leave unexpectedly. I was reading just the other day of Princess Diana in an auto crash in which she was killed, that the first responders that <clears throat> went to the car and were trying to remove her from the vehicle, her last words to them was, what is happening? And then she just bled out right in front of them. She hadn't expected, she had gone from this very glamorous, luxurious, entertaining life, climbed in a luxury limousine, drive by a, a trained bodyguard and driver who drove it into a pillar and killed all of them in the vehicle, but none of that had been anticipated. And that happens to many people. They just find that death suddenly lurches upon them and they have no way of thinking through how those last moments are going to be. And then you take the vast other part of life, people who go through this lengthy dying process. And as I saw with my parents and I see with other loved ones, that many times as the disease progresses, so also does their awareness of their circumstances, their cognitive ability to really process what's going on, and they just kind of drift away quietly as if they go to sleep and they're gone. Very few people in this world have the opportunity to look at a calendar and say, this is the last day I'm going to be on this planet. And most of those are people who are waiting for their execution. Here Paul was. He knew that his fate was sealed, that he was going to die. I suspect he knew exactly when he was going to die. And he knew that it was a matter of time, that morning would come when they would take him in his chains, lead him out to the block, put his head on it, 
and the executioner would pull out the broad sword that the Romans used to execute and would hopefully cut his head off in one swipe and wouldn't be, have, have poor aim that day. You see, that was something that was unique, and that's why I titled this little series that we're going to be doing for the next four weeks, A View from the Edge, because Paul was standing on the edge of eternity, and he was looking into the eternal future, and what he says at those moments are so significant, I think, so important for us to hear as it was for those to whom he first intended this reading. You see, Paul's second Roman imprisonment, and that's what we know, that this was the second time he had been imprisoned in Rome, it marked actually the beginning of the first official persecution of Christians by the government of Rome. Over the next 200 years, there would be 10 persecutions, official persecutions. There was a lot of minor issues that took place, but 10 different times over 200 years, you can kind of map it out. They could count on every 20 to 25 years, Rome was going to go into a decidedly concerted effort to extinguish Christianity. Each time they did, the church came out bigger and larger and more vital. In fact, so much so that the church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of the saints is the seeds of the church. That somehow the more we bleed and die, the more the church grows and expands. It wouldn't be until Constantine became the emperor in 312, having defeated his opponents on the Milvian Bridge in 312, that suddenly Christianity was declared to be legal. It wasn't made the official religion of Rome, as some people have assumed or mistakenly reported. It it just simply, they were allowed to worship God like anybody else. And all of that changed, and the direction of Christianity changed. Some believe in a rather unhealthy direction. But nonetheless, this first political persecution was not because of religion. It was a political expediency. In fact, the emperor could care less about the Christians or what they believed. They were really of no interest to him whatsoever. They were rather a tool that met a need that he had at that moment in his life. You see, some months before, the city of Rome had been ravaged by a devastating fire. Four-fifths of the city had been touched by the flames, leaving thousands dead, and many thousand more were injured, were homeless, penniless, destroyed, and wiped out. In the aftermath of the fire, Nero, the megalomaniac, psychopathic ruler that he was, saw an opportunity. You know the saying, you see, see lemons, you make lemonade. Well, he saw destruction, he saw the opportunity for construction. And so he took possession by force of one-third of the city and began building his, what he called, golden house. He was going to build a palatial mansion that dwarfed anything that had ever been seen before in the history of the world. He didn't care about the sufferings of the people. He didn't care about bankrupting the the empire. He just was a man who was obsessed with his own grandeur, which led the homeless and the hurting to begin to wonder if, in fact, he wasn't 
the actual cause for the fire in the first place. Historians today debate that. We can't know for sure. But he knew that as the focus began to come upon him and suspicion and distrust began to grow in the empire that he needed to find someone to blame. He needed a scapegoat. And we're not told how he came upon the Christians, but the bottom line is there was this odd, obscure group composed mainly of poor people and slaves and it, they believed, they followed a, an executed criminal whom they called their Savior and God and Messiah and said that unless you worship him alone in exclusion of all other gods, then you'll never get to heaven. They were widely reported as practicing all sorts of wicked things like cannibalism because the word went out that they ate his body and drank his blood at their services. They were accused of human sacrifice because he had been sacrificed for the sins of the world. They were accused of committing incest because they referred to each other as brothers and sisters and they greeted one another with a holy kiss. It's kind of like that rumor game you played when you were a kid. You just pass it around and the story gets more dramatic as it goes on. But you see, what Nero knew was that he may have been crazy, but he was crazy like a fox. He knew there would be little, if any, political backlash or fallout from persecuting and blaming the Christians. Few, if any, would haphazard, would hazard their, their lives to speak on their behalf or in their defense. And his assumption proved to be 100% accurate. As Paul admitted in his letter to us, he said in verse 15 of chapter 1, everyone has deserted me. That word deserted in the original means totally abandoned, utterly forsaken. Paul is simply saying, I stood there and all around me were nothing but enemies and accusers, no friends. In chapter 4, he adds again, he says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Same word. Crescens to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Titus, the bishop of Crete, had fled as well. And then finally in verse 16, he concludes, he says, At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Paul knew that death was imminent. In the vernacular of our day, we would say he was a dead man walking. And yet, there was none of the customary behavior that a condemned man displays. There was no blaming. There was no bargaining. There was no anger. There was no depression. There was no denial there wasn't even that resignation that we often see when a person finally comes to a place of accepting their own demise and they just kind of are at rest now because they're no longer struggling to survive. Even that is absence. Instead, instead of resignation, we find this unusual readiness. I mean, he says in, in chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, the time has come. It's almost like, my birthday is here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And he adds, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Such a cry of confident victory is so unusual. But what is most unusual about Paul's comments is that he, they aren't primarily about himself. I mean, yes, he does speak about himself in the sense of what is the source of his confidence? He talks about how that God has given him the promise of eternal life. And that word promise in the original implies an uh, irreversible promise. I mean, it's a guarantee. It's a certainty. It's not something that I hope will happen. It's something that is guaranteed. I am guaranteed eternal life. He talks about the fulfillment of these things, that what he's going through is a fulfillment of God's will. It's part of God's great purpose for his life, even as the cross was the fulfillment of the Father's purpose for Jesus. He talks about the power of God that has enabled him to, to fulfill that purpose and the grace of God that made that power available to one who is so sinful and undeserving and yet God in his great mercy and love chose him for the honor of not only living for him but suffering and ultimately dying for his sake and for the proclamation of the gospel. But most of the letter is not about even that. Like Jesus before him, his greatest concern was not for himself, but rather for those he was leaving behind, especially those who would be hopefully following in his footsteps and would endeavor to follow him even as Paul said he had endeavored to follow Jesus. He mentions them by name, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, Mark, Luke, Onesiphorus, Tychicus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and then he adds, and all the brothers. That in his mind he is viewing all of those men and women who have not yet fled, who have not deserted him and the gospel, who have not loved their life in this present world so much that they've chosen to deny the faith that secures their eternity in the next. It's almost as if he views himself in this moment like a runner who is preparing to pass the baton to the next in line. That he's just one of a generation racing towards the other waiting runner and extending his hand out to place it in the hand of the runner that's before him so that he could pass it on and they too can continue to carry it on and pass it on to yet more generations that would follow. And that's why he gives the exhortation in verse 8. He says, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Join with me in my suffering. That word ashamed there is interesting because it certainly implies the idea of shame, but it literally means the fear of having the rug pulled out from underneath you. The idea that you stand on something and suddenly have it collapse underneath you and let you down. 
that you trust in someone and you've been betrayed. That trust has been betrayed. It's that whole idea. Don't be afraid to trust in everything that God has said to you and he said through me and he said in his scriptures. Don't be afraid to trust in that because you won't be disappointed. You won't be let down. Even though you can look at my life and say, look what there's got, look where the gospel's gotten Paul. He's in prison waiting execution. He's been beaten to a pulp so he hardly looks like himself. And he said, don't be ashamed of that. Don't see that as the thing to escape from. See it as the thing to be embraced if that in fact is God's purpose for your life. In fact, as he said to Timothy in the first letter, he said to him, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. I don't know if you've ever noticed in reading Paul's letters how often he uses military metaphors or metaphors of competition and conflict because in the ancient world, what athletics was was training for military conflict so that when we look at the ancient Olympics, everything they did was basically what warriors did in combat. And that's what it was all about. It was training for war. And so he uses these terms, and we can use them rather interchangeably. For example, when he writes to the Corinthians in the first letter in chapter 9, he says, run in such a way to get the prize. Go into training. Do not run aimlessly. Do not fight like a man who is beating the air. In other words, he says, like a warrior who knows exactly where the enemy is and charges at the enemy, you need to take that same focus into your life. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, we are called to wage war, not a war of the flesh or with one another, but rather he says, with weapons that have divine power so that we can demolish strongholds. Or in the Ephesians, he said in chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God that you might resist the wiles, the deceptions, and stand against the devil's evil schemes. And here too, and we'll go into it more again next week, in chapter 2 he uses that same language when he says to them in verse 3, endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. What it appears to me as I read all of these things, when I listen to the kind of rhetoric that Paul uses, that he felt he needed the churches to understand, as A.W. Tozer once put it, the world is not a playground, it's a battlefield. The world is not a place that God created for us to frolic, but it's a place for us to fight. It's not a place for us to seek how we can settle down, but how instead we can take ground for the kingdom of God. It's not about building my career. It's about building his church in this world. He wants us to understand that we are engaged in a great war. In fact, as, as Randy and, and was sharing it this morning, it just really, really struck me with such resonance that it's so easy for us, not just in this community, 
but in this nation and many places in the world to think that the world is just this wonderful, beautiful place. Last week when we were down in California, uh, somebody asked me how, how I was enjoying my time there, and I said, well, I know I'm going to heaven. And they said, why? I said, because I've been to hell. And I meant it in the most literal sense because the temperature was 109 degrees. And I thought, I can't believe there's life here. But anyway, like they always, like the skeleton said, at least it's a dry heat. But the point is that, what was the point? <laughs> so, you know, I get home, I, get, I come back to Spokane, I'm driving home and I'm thinking to myself, this place is so beautiful. It's green, there's water. And you can water your lawn not every third Tuesday. You can actually enjoy this place. As Randy said, there are lakes everywhere. What a beautiful place. And yet, you need to understand that this city has a dark, dark, deep underbelly. That as we began to experience in ministry with the addiction to heroin, with the addiction to pornography, the addiction to sex trades, the addiction to all these kinds of things that are going on, the violence that, that takes place that doesn't even get reported. We're living in a place that is embattled because there is a force that loves to present himself as an angel of light. He would love for Spokane to be lulled into this sense of, don't we live in a beautiful little place, not like other places, and be blinded to the darkness that's all around us and the needs and the hurts and the issues that are all around us. That it's not just simply in one of these depressed neighborhoods down the street that thank goodness isn't in our neighborhood, but it's everywhere. But it touches the wealthiest and not just the poorest. It touches the best educated, not just the least educated. You begin to understand that we are living on a battlefield. There is a war that's raging around us. And the danger is, the biggest danger that any soldier faces is not the fact that there's an enemy, but that he doesn't know that there's an enemy. Ironically, the greatest enemy a warrior ever faces is first of all, ignorance of his enemy, and then secondly, fear of that enemy. So what Paul wants to do is explode that myth in these men's eyes. When Paul is arrested and Crescens and, and, and Titus and Demas flee for their lives, why did they run? Why was fear able to overwhelm them? And in large part is because they had not, as Jesus said, count the costs. No man goes to war until he realizes what the size of his enemy is and prepares himself accordingly. They had not counted the costs. What motivated them to follow Paul? you would hope would be just a desire to serve God, but maybe there's an admixture of other things. Maybe there's a certain selfish ambition, a, an attraction to the power of his ministry, the impact of his words, the size of the audience, the, the role that he had. Whatever it is, these things seep into us and they corrupt our motivation. And suddenly we forget that we're not building castles. We're building the kingdom of God. We're not building careers. We're supposed to be building his church. 
And we're not fighting the culture. We're fighting the very demons of hell and darkness. And we cannot defeat them with material weaponry or human intellect or financial resources. We can only defeat them by the power of God that he bestows upon us through his spirit. So Paul warns them about the spirit of timidity. I think we could literally translate that cowardice. I don't know if the translators veer away from it because the, lexi the lexicon seem to feel good with that word, but somehow it hits us too hard. It, it, it offends our sensibility. I'm a little timid. I'm a little anxious. And yet Paul is saying, watch out for being a coward because you and I can be. And he talks about the things. He lists them. There's the fear of suffering. And Paul says, come, suffer with me. <laughs> Boy, now that's an attractive offer. <laughs> Can't you see people lining up? Come, suffer with me. No, you know, I'll be quite honest. I attempt to organize my life to eliminate as much suffering as possible. And I share that with you transparently because I know you are exactly the same way. And God in his genius has a way of boxing me into the canyons of life so no matter which way I turn, there it is. But he knows that people will sometimes do anything to avoid suffering. In fact, I would suggest just simply by the rationale of numbers, that there are some of you whose lives have been defined as an escape artist. You've run away from everything that's gotten hard. You've panicked and fled. Whether it be an unexpected illness or a relationship that is harder to keep than you realized or a person that's harder to live with or forgive or be around than you ever wanted. And immediately this thing inside of you says, get out of Dodge, find an exit path, send a text message, and let them know you're gone. And then he said there's secondly this issue of the fear of being ashamed, being disappointed. I remember years ago when I was working in a ministry and we're going through a very difficult season and... and uh, <clears throat> I, I called my associate in, I sat him down, I said, I'm really struggling because I need all hands on deck and uh, we need to be focusing and working our rear ends off and it's like you're just kind of, kind of hanging back. I don't feel like you're giving your whole heart. And he said something to me that just left me kind of nonplussed. He said, well, your perceptions are accurate. I don't think we're going to succeed and I don't want to end up with egg on my face. <laughs> you make me feel like a yoke right now. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> you realize you're not putting your heart into it because you don't want to look bad. What if I pour my heart out and nothing happens? I get it. Do you realize that every time somebody with a serious illness or 
comes to me and says, would you pray for my healing? And I pray for them in the back of my mind saying, oh, Jesus, it'd be so wonderful that you'd heal them, that that way I'd look good. <laughs> oh, I know, you never do that, okay. Uh, I'll never forget, <laughs> young guy, man, strung out on, on meth, he was tweaking like crazy to the point where he was scaring me because he's walking around with a knife and, and kind of flipping out on me. And I didn't know what to do. Literally, I didn't know what to do. And finally, I got this genius of an idea. I said, can I pray for you? And I got a couple of guys around him and we all laid hands on him, and I kept one eye open to see where that knife was, and I, so I just started praying, and I started praying, and I started praying, and I just kept on praying because I didn't want to stop because I didn't want to deal with the fact that when I was done, then I'd have to go back to his tweaking. And finally, I stopped, and I stepped back, way back, and he sat there with his head down, and he said, I knew it wouldn't work. See, it wouldn't work. I knew it wouldn't work. And all of a sudden, I looked at him, and I said, hey, Look at your hands. And he lifts them up. And he's completely calm. And he looked at himself, and then he looked at me, and he says, it worked. And I said, of course. <laughs> God answers prayer. I, I'm good. I'm getting a, a motorhome, and I'm going on the road. <laughs> you know, it's like, I get it. I understand how sometimes, what if, I, what if I step out in faith and God doesn't meet me? What if I trust him and it all falls apart? What if I try to talk to them and it really goes ugly or goes south, which many times it does and that's part of the plan? What if? Paul said, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Trust in God. Believe God. And most of all, lastly, he's trying to say this, don't be afraid of death itself. Don't be afraid because death for us is not the end, it's the beginning. It's no different than when a mother sees, is carrying this baby in her womb and the most terrifying thought is that this is a, a lifelong condition. I'm going to be pregnant for the rest of my life. As my wife said, came to our, her third in three years. She says, I feel like I'm going to be pregnant for the rest of my life. I've been changing diapers for five years. And what a, what a day of celebration is when that baby comes out. You have to understand that God is looking upon the womb of this planet and he sees you and he's waiting as an expectant father saying, one of these days I'm going to have my child and my child is going to be born into the reality of what is really life in its fullness without pain and suffering and disease and death and loss. But until that day, don't live in the darkness of this present world, live in the brilliance of the one that is yet to come and the eternity that I've set before you. Paul understood these fears and their powers in people's lives because he had just experienced it. He saw how it overtook Figelis, how it overtook Hermogenes, how it overtook Demas, how it overtook Crescens, how it overtook Titus. He saw that he, they had been lost to the fears that conquered their, their hope and their faith. And so he turned his words and his attention to those who had not yet failed, who had not yet fled. And he said, here's how you overcome. 
In fact, there are three things that I could find in this text. That first of all, he said to him, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Now the image that Paul is, is, is painting here, this, this word picture, is one that we're all familiar with. If you've ever had a campfire, if we've ever done a backyard burner or anything like that, you know what it's like. You, you build this fire and it blazes and as time the combustibles are consumed and all you have left is ashes and embers and the fire is slowly going out. And then a wind comes up. And that wind causes those flames, those embers to flame up. And you throw logs on it and it burns and becomes a brilliant fire once again. That's the image that Paul is trying to put in their minds. Something they lived with because they cooked on open fires and they knew what it was like to blow on that and have the wind blow on it and see it become hot and powerful. He says, I want you to first and foremost fan the flames of faith, fan the Holy Spirit which is in you that it might begin to blaze. It's beginning to flicker out. It's beginning to become darkened around you and don't let that happen. Let it flare. Now the question is, how in the world do we do that? Well, it's really pretty easy it's by feeding and stimulating what is already in you. When I gave my life to Christ, the flame of the Holy Spirit, you know the picture of the day of Pentecost, fiery tongues of fire uh, rested upon them. It, it's this image of this fire that God puts inside of you when you come to Jesus. And we all know that when fears begin to control our life, that those fires can begin to grow cold and we may have the fire of God on the inside but people looking from the outside can't see even a flicker. How do we change that? By feeding it. By simple things that every time I read the word of God I'm fanning the flame of God's truth because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. I've never seen a Christian who is going cold and dark who is also reading the Word of God on a regular basis. No, there's something that I know that happens inside of me. I believe it probably happens inside of you that when you read it, no matter where your mind or your heart or your attitude is at, there's something that begins to strike and to capture you and there's an engagement that takes place because it's not an act of the intellect. It's not an act of discipline or anything of that nature. It's not even about necessarily understanding the text or the deeper facts of the theology. It's something about feeding my soul with spiritual truth that the spirit that wrote this book begins to relate and identify with the spirit that is now inside of me and something happens. It combusts on the inside of our soul. And as we begin to look to God and we open ourselves and say, Lord, have your way in me. Work your work in me. It's like opening the windows and letting the wind of the Spirit blow into your soul as it did on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly you become filled again with the Holy Spirit and power begins to emanate from your life. And all the time you can feel like some kind of spectator watching it happen. Because you know it's not you. 
but you know that you've allowed God to fan that flame. You've allowed him to breathe by his spirit as he did on the, when he came back to the disciples and there in the upper room said, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's giving God the opportunity. Now, I know it's hard to find the time. There's so much important television to watch. There's so many vital video games that need to be played. Things that really matter and can change your life and will last for all in time and eternity. You wouldn't believe some of the scores I'm getting on my iPhone. <laughs> I'm so good. And, you know, we talk about time. I mean, yeah, we're so busy and we're so strapped and we've got so many things. You're lying to yourself. You're just lying to yourself. No, I, I get it. Sometimes it's not convenient. I mean, I, I, it would sound noble. I, you know, I get up at 5.30 in the morning, and not because I'm such a spiritual giant. I'm just at that age in my life where I can't sleep anymore. <laughs> I might as well get out of bed. <laughs> you know, so because during the night, everything in my body is calcified and has to be, you know, <laughs> stretched and put back into place. But the simple reality is, that I discovered that from my aging infirmity, there is this wonderful blessing. The world is asleep, and it's just me and God. And I can sit there with my Bible, and I can read the Word of God, and I can allow God's Spirit just sitting there saying, Lord, I just, I just need to hear from you. I just need to feel you. I need to, to experience your grace and your love. Just, Lord, that, I just need to know that you're right here with me. It, it fans the flame of faith on the inside. There's nothing complex about it. There's no great technique. It's just, as the psalmist said, be still and know that I'm God. Now, if that works for you at, in the middle of the night or in the early evening or it works at noontime or on your break or whatever, just to stop and say, God, Breathe on me. Fan my faith into flame again. That secondly, he tells us to flee from our fears because he, where he says that he's not given us the spirit of cowardice but a power and love and self-discipline. I love the way Paul said to the Thessalonians in, in the second book, in the second chapter, he said <laughs> the way the uh, Phillips translation puts it, keep your head Keep your head. Don't become overwhelmed by things that you're afraid of. Keep the presence of mind. Because what we need to understand is that fear, even though it can be a powerful thing and maybe it's habitually been allowed to rule your life, fear in the end always remains a choice. That heroism is not the act of some fearless individual. Heroin is the act of someone who, in spite of the fears, made a very conscious decision to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others. It's a decision. It's a choice. And we have to understand that even though there are times when we are terrified by what appears to be the will of God for our lives, that's the moment in which we make a decision. Am I going to run in fear or am I going to stand in faith?
You know, it's interesting that Paul writing to the Ephesians three times in the sixth chapter, he says, stand, doing everything you can to stand, therefore stand. <laughs> he just said, just hold the ground that I've already given you. I'll conquer more, but you just need to hold. You need to stand. Sometimes standing is deciding we're going to pray instead of being depressed. Sometimes it means reaching for your Bible instead of reaching for the bottle. Sometimes it means going to someone that you don't want to have anything to do with. That it's simply making a decision that you're going to move in the direction which God wants you to go rather than moving in the direction that fear tells you you better go if you're going to survive. You need to make a choice. And then thirdly, he says, guard the gospel. How'd he put it? He said in verse 13, uh, verse 13, he says, um, keep as a pattern of sound teaching that which I've committed to you. He says, the good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You see, a lot of times we think guarding and keeping the gospel means that we're supposed to make sure that all of our doctrines are like ducks in a row and everything lines up perfectly and we can explain everything doctrinally and, and, and be right. And I'm, I'm not criticizing or belittling that. I, I think that there's value in knowing accurately what the Bible says. But there is something more fundamental in guarding the gospel. And that is being willing to hear what it's actually saying. The gospel is not simply Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. The gospel is not simply Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day. That's part of the gospel. It's a central part of the gospel. But it also is that once Christ died and I believed on his death and I believed on his resurrection and I asked him into my heart, the gospel also means my life now is his. So that when we come and partake of these elements of communion, which we're told to do as often as we have the opportunity, what does it mean that we have pieces of unleavened bread here? Jesus said, this is my body that's given for you. What, what, what does that mean to me? It means, therefore, give your body, present your body to me as a living sacrifice. What he's calling through these emblems is an act of imitation. Follow me. I gave my body, and I'm calling you to follow me and be willing to say, God, here's my body. Even to the point if God says, I want to disease your body for my glory, Will you say, Lord, your will be done? And the cup represents his blood, but more so his life. Not just the giving of my body to him, but the willingness to give it to the point of death itself. That's why Paul said, I am poured out. He was speaking of how the priest would take the sacred wine and he would pour it out over the altar. He says, that's what's happening to me right now. I'm being poured all out on the altar of God as a sacrifice was by the priest. And I'm rejoicing because it signifies not the end, 
but the beginning. And not just the beginning of my eternal life, but the beginning of a work of God that will continue until Christ comes. Paul warned the Galatians. He said there would be some who would come and pervert the gospel. And there are a lot of ways that that can be done. But it really comes down to one simple thing, that when we begin to present the gospel to in degrees or manners which is not the gospel. Then increasingly, as A.W. Tozer so prophetically said that uh, it's amazing, right? This man writing 60 years ago seemed to know our times better than we know them. And he said we're, there's, there's this growing thing where Christianity is all about what Jesus can do for me and nothing about the cross. That we think that life is something to be enjoyed and rather, rather than seeing life as something to be lived for his glory. And we live in that age where it's increasingly uh, being presented as if your best life now is what's important. In fact, the largest church in America, that's the theme of the pulpit, how to find your best life now. Well, I get it. I get it. Very attractive message. Paul apparently didn't get the book. <laughs> or maybe he was reading a different book and he understood it on a deeper level than that individual does. What is your life but a vapor that appears for a moment and passes away? Do you ever wonder what your last words are going to be? Last May, I, I was talking with a, overseas, I was with this pastor from Cambridge, England, and wonderful guy, really enjoyed this guy. I liked him a lot, we had fun. But he likes Monty Python also. But we sat there and role-played. <laughs> my wife would have said, you guys grow up. Anyway, but he was telling me, he says, you know, when my, my grandfather was dying, uh, he, he called and said he wanted to see me, and I was thinking, wow, I'm going to get next to Grandpa and get some final last words of wisdom. And since I was so excited as a young man to hear exactly what he was going to say, and he says, I, I walked in, I said, he said, Grandpa, I'm here. He goes, son, come here. And he says, I, I get up next to the bed, and he looks at me and says, can I give you a word of advice? Get a haircut. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> well, do you ever wonder what it's going to be? Well, let me say, what it's going to be is what you are right now. We will die the way we have lived. We will be in the last moments who we have been in all the previous moments. And I'm not so concerned about saying something profound at my death. I'm concerned that I might say and do things that I might not say and do things that are profound while I'm still alive. I want my life to matter as much today as it does in the last day, in the last moment. St. Benedict was asked one time, 
what he would do is he, he was engaged in playing a game of handball and he was asked by one of his disciples, what would you do if you, differently if you knew that Jesus was coming back today? And he stopped for a moment. He thought, probably continue playing my handball <laughs> because if it's wrong for me to be doing it now, it'll be wrong for me doing it then. So, but if it's not wrong, it's not wrong. I'm not, in other words, he was saying, I'm not going to live my life any differently than the way I've lived it up to this point. And that's the whole point. Would you live your life differently? Are you one of those people saying, one day, one day I'm going to do this differently. One day I'm going to get involved. One day I'm going to get engaged. One day I'm going to commit myself. One day I'm going to put Jesus first. One day I'm going to commit my life to him. One day I'm going to, well, let me tell you that one day never comes. That's why Paul said, today is the day. And who you are today will define who you will be on the very last day. If you're not going to live for him today, then you're not going to live for him for the last moment either. No, we start doing it today. Now I know that there are some of you who are far more brilliant than I am, and you're sitting there saying, I don't agree. God bless you. How's that working for you? How's that working? It's so important. As the psalm once said, when life will soon be past, but only that which is done for Christ will last. I don't mean to drive you crazy with that. If you want to go out and play some handball, go for it. But when you look at the trajectory of your life, where is it going? Some people saying, I feel like my life's going downhill. Some people feel like I'm just flat planing and nothing changes. Believe it or not, that's a choice. How do you change that choice? You open the windows of your heart and you let God fan the flames of your heart so that they burst forth in blaze. And without knowing it, without planning it, without working at it, you're just going to suddenly find you're going to go through the world putting things on fire. In a metaphorical sense, please. <laughs> That's how it works. Father God, I pray that you'd give us hearts that hear. I pray that you'd give us a yearning and a desire, an appetite for these things, Lord, so that they wouldn't be things that are so frightening that we run away from them, but Lord, rather we would allow ourselves to be touched by your truth, to be impacted by your reality, and that you would begin to excite within us a desire, a yearning to simply say, Lord, here's my body, here's my life. It's yours to do with as you please. That even though I don't know what that is or what that might look like, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue on for a few more minutes as the team leads us in worship. And I would just, again, like to just remind you that uh, this is a time, this is one of those times in which you can kind of open the window and let the breeze of God blow over your heart and begin to kindle those flames. If it's nothing more than just simply sitting there and, 
and, and singing the songs with all the meaning that you can usher in your heart. If it means just sitting here and saying, God, I, I, I don't want to live a life of mediocrity and futility. I want to live a life that, that is profound for Jesus. But I just encourage you to respond to the Holy Spirit, to let him begin to kindle that fire inside your heart. We invite you to come up and take the elements of communion, but I would just, again, just a simple word of caution that you need to understand that when we partake of these things, we're making a statement. We're, we're saying to God, not, not anybody else in this room, we're saying to God, God, I'm going to partake of this bread. This bread represents my body that is given to you. Here it is. As I consume this bread, so God, I invite you to consume my body. As I drink this cup, Lord, I, I accept it as the life of the body being poured out and I pour myself out. Lord, dispense of my life as pleases you. That's what we're supposed to be saying when we do this. And, and it, it, it terrifies me sometimes when I catch myself turning it into a simple ritual <laughs> instead of a profound statement of faith. But when we do things like this as a statement of faith, it has impact. It opens the window. The fire of God begins to blaze inside of us. And there is something that changes on the inside that just makes us different people. We just become different people. We become people of the Spirit. So I encourage you to respond to God in this brief moment that we have. In Jesus' name.